Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, you'll hear Readings bookseller Mari Matteson in conversation with author Lauren Chater about Lauren's new work of historical fiction, Gulliver's Wife, an exploration of the life of Mary Burton Gulliver, midwife, herbalist, mother, and the wife of Lemuel Gulliver, the hero of Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. A quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. To introduce Mari, here's the host of the evening, Reading's own Chris Gordon. Anyway, let me introduce you to Mari. Mari is one of those extraordinary people. She's a reviewer, an interviewer, a bookseller. Uh, she is a travel fiasco, uh, travel kind of genius. She travels in treks in places that I would only dream of. She goes to the coldest, coldest parts of the world and she scums all the way back to us. It is such a pleasure, Mari, to have you with us tonight interviewing the one and only Lauren about her book. Mari, over to you, my friend. Uh, thank you, Chris. Thank you for inviting me tonight. And I am very excited to introduce tonight's author, Lauren Shader. Lauren has written two historical novels. The first, The Lace Weaver, set during World War II, isn't yes. it? World yes. War II, yes. Yeah, World War II uh, in the Eastern, Eastern Europe and yes. the Baltic states, places I've always wanted to go, haven't made them on these trips that Chris talks about. <laughs> and... The most, your most recent novel, which is also the last book I physically was handed by a publisher oh. or an author <laughs> when I met you in Melbourne just before we all went into lockdown, Gulliver's Wife. So welcome. Thank you for being here. I know you've also actually written a book uh, on baking, and I thought baking and literary inspiration is exactly what we need. So you've probably been <laughs> fine during this whole time, haven't you? You've got yeah, I, I was fine, except that um, the flour ran out, you know, so. Oh, that's <laughs> true, yes. Yeah, yeah, kind of a contraband thing, trying to find flour. So I had to beg some flour to make some cookies. Okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, baking and cookies was my thing as well, so. Great, and flour, um, flour is uh, running out in the novel. That's right. You've got That's the flower right. Tax coming in. You've got exactly. trade restrictions. You've got war. You've got problems. So, Gulliver's wife, talk us through what the what that story is. Why why it's called this, and where you came up with this idea. Sure. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you for having me, firstly, and thank you for reading the book and um, going into so much depth and um, thinking about it so so much. But. Um, Gulliver's Wife is my second novel. Um, I was inspired to write um, the book after well, I was working in my local library, which is um, Sutherland in the Sutherland Shire in Sydney. Ah, know it well. Um, yes, know it well. Yeah, and uh, myself, so <laughs> there you go. Um, and I, I decided that I would somewhat foolishly uh, try to read all the books in the section titled A Thousand One Books to Read Before You Die. Um, and one of those books that I reread was um, Jonathan Swift's classic uh, Gulliver's Travels. Um, and now Gulliver's Travels was published in 1726. It was intended to be a satire um, and it was sort of taking the mickey out of uh, queen and country. Not a bad thing. Um, he knew that he was in, he's going to be in a bit of strife if they uncovered who, who had written this. So he published it anonymously. Um, yeah. And it's the story of a sailor surgeon who travels to distant lands and encounters all these fantastical creatures, um, in, including the most well-known, which are these tiny little people 
called the Lilliputians and they're fighting a war with their neighbours um, and they're fighting a ridiculous war um, and it's over which end of the egg you should eat first. So they're yeah. called the Big Endians. <laughs> um, so it's very quirky and very um, strange, but people loved it. Um, but lots of people don't remember that it's, um, it was actually originally written as an adult story and it was um, a satire as well of the travelogues of the time. So William... Yeah, I, um, I mean, I remember yeah. pictures and being a kid and, and yeah. Gulliver's staked out and the little people and yeah did you ever watch that cartoon in 1940s there's a italian cartoon of it no. still got, my no, dad still got the uh the VHS. i would have to try and look that up <laughs> yeah we loved it yeah, yeah we loved it um and there's something about this idea isn't it of being a big person especially for children i think because they have such little power in their and control in their lives um that they just love it but uh, reading it as an adult um I really was aware of the fact that his wife took a very marginalised, um, uh, was very much marginalised in the story and she really took a back seat to all of his adventures and she only existed on the fringes of his world and only when he needed to come home and he needed a place to sleep and someone to make his food. Mm. Um, and so I thought that I would want to explore um, what her life would be like, um, Mary Gulliver, and also what their relationship might have been like. So that was, yeah, that was kind of the inspiration. That's awesome. It's wonderful. And, and you do. And I think the thing that struck me most at first was that when, whenever any of us go back to read classics again, any of us, uh, as anyone who remembers them vaguely or remembers them not being about someone like them, uh, mainly because they're all about old men. That's right. <laughs> and they're all, they're all about That's men true. anyway. They're usually about... Yeah richer, more powerful people in general, yep. which tend yep. to be rich white men. Yep. So as a young woman, I ne never wanted to go back and read them again because I thought that doesn't really yeah, have anything yeah. for me. Yeah. That's because true. you're the character off to the side in it. So yeah, exactly. is that where that impetus comes from, to sort of fill yeah. that space a bit? Yeah, I think so. And um, definitely to... to um, to make it obvious that women's journeys were no, of no less value than people like Gulliver who were adventurers and went off to sea and had all these fantastical kind of journeys. Um, Mary is left behind um, to do, to look after the house and she has to have a job so that she can pay her bills and look after her children. Um, and so her world is very much a domestic world, but it's no less filled with challenges and um, things that she has to overcome. So that was definitely um, a part of the driving force behind why I wanted to um, write the book. And so you say you started with the character of Mary. Um, how did that lead you though into this world of midwifery and into the ghouls of the time and yep. whopping in however you say that I'm probably saying that incorrectly sorry yeah whopping. no that's right whopping whopping, yep. whopping. um <laughs> I mean I, I sort of I can see like in the character of Bess her daughter a lot of those questions of what makes an adventure or a life worth living and what's important but yeah yeah particularly all so much wonderful rich detail in that uh work on midwifery so what, is Mary a midwife in the novel? I assume she's not. Or no, she's not a midwife. So there's only a, a sort of a half a dozen references to yeah. Mary um, in the story, basically, just when he needs a wife and he, um, and he marries her and she's the daughter of a hosier, which was a person who made stockings. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I decided that I needed to give her um, her own 
um, agency and her own employment because the kind of money that Gulliver would have been making when I was reading about um, what sailors made, they were given sort of an advance and he spends it all in the book. Um, yeah. Spoiler alert and leaves her sort of with nothing. Uh, and so she would have needed uh, a profession and there were very, very limited options for women at the time they couldn't join guilds you know they even if they were painters the painters guild they weren't allowed to join the painters guild um they, they could be grocers but they they would have to stand at the side of the road all day and it was dirty hard work um and so one of as i was doing my research and i read a lot around the edges of um the midwifery until i found a particular book which was called the the 17th century um midwives of london and it was a, a doctor um a woman had written her PhD on uh, these unnamed women and they had never been, uh, their names had never been sort of illuminated. So she went to the British Library and tracked them all down, uh, which I thought was just really cool. And uh, so she could um, explain a lot about what midwifery was like at the time. And it was um, different to how I'd imagined it, and which I think was how male practitioners had um, described it through the years um these women did they describe these women as being sort of unintelligent illiterate um they just sort of they were sort of lucky that they didn't actually kill the women or the babies as they were helping them but it was completely inaccurate they actually had their own training system and they had apprentices and um they had an oath they had to swear an oath uh, to do no harm to the women that they um, were looking after and so i really wanted to incorporate all those things because i think um, that idea of uh, taking on new life um, was is a really huge role um, and my mother is a midwife as well yeah. and so to me that seemed like something that was worth valuing and worth exploring um, as opposed to what Gulliver does which is just go off and <laughs> have fun and then come back when he needs more funds yeah. um, so that was where kind of, the, that's the story we know already yeah that's the story that's we know yeah so that was where the midwifery sort of came into it. Oh, that's great. Um, speaking of research, you, you write historical novels. They've both been historical novels. This is, what, 230 years earlier than your last novel. Yeah. I mean, a very early 18th century, late 17th century London is a different world from yes. my remembering back to my uh, first year university, early modern Europe um, and late modern Europe kind of um, studies. Yeah. And I know that's when the book is set, but how, do, how did you go about that? I mean, is, is it the research that you love doing? Is it the story that came to you first? Which one sort of, like, I mean, I know how this story came to you. Yeah. But yeah. what was leading you to historical fiction and not any other yeah. form of writing? Well, I think... I think um, it's that idea that comes first and that sort of question um, why you want to tell this story. The story that I'm working on at the moment is a contemporary, um, has a contemporary strand and a historical yeah. strand, which is a huge challenge. Um, yeah. But I do think that as writers, we should be able to write about any time period. Yeah. <laughs> it just means that, you know, you have to do the research and you have to do the thinking and it takes time. It takes quite a long time to do it. Um, but the way that I like to do um, my research is to just start really wide and I read as many um, kind of, what have I got on my desk at the moment, books um, about uh, the time period. So I'm, it's the one that I'm working on at the moment is like set in the 17th century and it's set in 17th century Holland. And so I'm reading this really great book, which is called Early Modern Women's Writing. 
and it's about um, England and the Dutch Republic and um, these incredible women um, who were glass engravers at the time and refused oh. to marry, which I just think is fabulous. So I start yeah. with those kind of, yeah, university texts um, yeah. and then drill down into the actual story. Yeah. Um, but I try not to overload the story with too many details as well. That's always yeah. my goal. But that's a yeah. later that, that's, a, that's a later goal. Yeah. yeah. So, look, I have to say, my, my first degree was in history too, um, and I love researching things. How do you pull yourself away from the research? So once you've Dead, started... Deadlines. Deadlines, <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's a, the deadline's always good. Yeah. Um, I mean, are you writing the entire time that you're researching or does it take a while until you feel that you've built your world around you, I guess, in order to pull... Yeah. I think... Um, I, th I start with a general idea of where the story needs to go um, and then I go back and edit it. So I wouldn't, I don't get writing a whole draft. I will work on it as I go um, because I just don't think there's any point writing, you know, wasting 100,000 words when the story is going to have to change so significantly. Um, so I just try to fix it as I go. But um, I don't know. I, I like to have an idea of where it's going, but I don't like to know all the answers, I think. Yeah. Um, and I like discovering that historical, um, those amazing historical gems along the way, you know, just things that you never knew about, like in the Gulliver's Wife, it was the customs and the folklore of that time period, that woman who gave birth to rabbits, you know, yes, and, uh, and everyone who came yeah. from around, all around to, and she tricked all those medical men into thinking that uh, she'd actually given birth to rabbits. <laughs> That kind of thing, yeah. I think, and I mean, one of the details that I was fascinated by that I'd never heard before was the idea of uh, midwives um, being expert witnesses. Yes, in, I know. In all cases, which I guess would also mean that there's a written record of them, a better yeah. written record of them. Than you yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in... Um, Doreen Evidence, Evidence book about the 17th century midwives that I came across it and then did a, a bit more um, cross research on it. But I, I also thought it was really fascinating um, and I wish I could have put more of it in there, but I didn't want it to be too. Um, oh, no, I think it's great because I think that aren't yeah. they, as readers of historical fictions, you know, you're enjoying the plot and you're enjoying yeah. the story and you want to know where it goes, but then you get like a little detail. You're like, oh, I could follow that up later. Yeah, that's, that's true. Kind of that's true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it, it's incredible. And it also it um, bring, brings home how um, respected they actually were in yeah. some senses. Um, and that respectability obviously came at a price and they would have to be very careful about how they behaved and, um, you know, their decisions yeah. and things like that. But they were held in great respect because they they had access to women and they knew women's bodies. Um, a lot of the midwifery manuals before the 17th century were all written by men who had never seen a woman give birth, which is just incredible. Um, they had to ask their wives and their sisters what it looked like. What so, what is that? Yeah. yeah, what is that? What, what is that? So, um, so the Jane Sharp, who, um, whose manual I read, and it was really important part of the story, um, she was the first woman to be published in English and she wrote her own. Um, midwifery manual and so you can just see that she knows women's anatomy so much better than the ones that have come before it so I thought that was interesting well and that they're building on information they gathered at the time yes too. exactly so that's true they're yeah. I guess they uh, predate 
modern yeah. medicine in that that's manner. right so because it seems like a lot like uh in the story too the surgeons are floundering somewhat with their someone and i think that's interesting positing uh gulliver as a surgeon and his wife as a midwife as i know just kind two of versions of yeah med medical care and authority yes. coming together that's and right. fighting each other yeah that's yeah. right yeah but did you find um did you have any hesitations or have you had any interesting reactions to going back in to an established classic and saying um, write about someone else in it yeah i think there's always going to be people who it's not going to agree with the way that they imagine the story um but the original gulliver's travels uh, you know when you read it now it can be a little bit dense and there's no dialogue <laughs> so yeah. reading it um as a modern reader i mean i think there are definitely things that we can take out of it um but it's maybe it, it presents a certain point of view as well it's its own narrative and so i wanted to give mary her own voice really which is why i made tried to make gulliver more of a marginalized character in um, mary's story because i wanted to keep the focus on her and and bess um yeah some people don't love it they said it's sort of the antithesis of gulliver's travels and i thought well that's good because <laughs> that's yeah. what i wanted <laughs> i didn't want to write gulliver's travels and no. I would have done that, you know, so. yeah that already exists yeah so, i know so yeah. um yeah but i was reading a lot of um other really great um books at the time that take these women marginalized mm. women and make them the heroes like pat barker's the silence of the girls i loved oh, yeah. that yeah. so good so good yeah. i know she has the achilles point of view I feel like she kind of had to put that in there for i don't know marketing reasons yeah. <laughs> maybe she tears but it down too though so it's okay oh i know it's brilliant she, anyway i actually loved yeah. it loved the whole yeah. thing um and cersei was um came out a couple of years ago and i really liked that too yeah and i mean it does seem to be a, a growing trend yes is i guess not people imagining the lives of these women but having the opportunity to write about them yeah that's right because the interest is there and um and someone i oh, i can't remember if it's jesse burton someone's writing a story of medusa which i i think sounds fabulous because medusa before she grew all those snakes was yeah um, yeah was a, a young woman and she was raped and that so she the vengeful snakes but um yeah, so I think there's lots of stories out there still to explore. And I did love Pat Barker had a repost once. Someone said to her, there's no way Penelope would have said this or whatever, whoever she's talking about at the time. I can't remember which character. And her response was, well, they weren't real, so how, how did they say anything? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so the, the other idea is yeah. this idea of uh, the existing historical literary canon being yeah. historical fact. Yeah, it's funny, isn't and it? I mean, oh, these these are yeah. these are stories. They're not fact. That's right. So we can all work with them. Yes, that's true. It might have yeah. been different if I'd been taking a character from um, a real situation, yeah, a real character, but taking a fictional character from yeah. a fictional book is a different kind of thing altogether, you're right. Does it feel different? Like have you also looked at doing have you looked at writing historical fiction with real characters or uh, well, the next one that I'm working on is kind of controversial and I'm still not 100% sure how it's going to go down um, because the people that I'm writing about, um, well, the dress, it's 
based on a discovery of this 17th century silk dress. It was um, brought up by amateur divers in 2014 off um, the coast of Texel. And I want to write, I want to write a story about um, a dress historian who's sort of pulled back to Texel. Um, She's moved to Australia and she gets drawn back there. And so it's her story um, and the story of the woman who wore the dress. Um, But these are real people, you know. And so when I went over there to do my research last year, sort of trying to find out from them how they'd feel about it. And I said, I kept saying to them, it's going to be fictional. It's going to be fictional Um, because it's when they brought the dress up, um, it was actually illegal. Uh, And so there's this, there was this big standoff with the government. So there's a, yeah, there's a, there are things to be aware of with that when you're writing about real people. And I didn't have to worry about that so much with the Gulliver, but definitely that's going to be (laughs) something to think about for the next one. I guess because if you're ever writing about things that could be illegal at some point, that's always difficult with rural people, I'm sure. But yes, also, exactly. I mean, how, how do people feel about the idea of you writing about their history if you talk to people? Was that something that people wanted to talk about or felt interested in knowing about? Yeah, when I wrote um, the Estonian book, um, yeah. The Lace Weaver, I did a lot of research um, with the Estonian community um, and did a lot of interviews um, with the women um, women who are based in Sydney. Um, and that was really wonderful. I mean, they were, at first, they were a little bit cagey because they didn't know what my intentions were. Um, but I wanted to really understand that culture as much as I could and... Um, and for them to feel comfortable to talk to me about it. Um, and so we ended up doing a couple of interviews a few times um, and they were really valuable, um, the things that they told me, the little details. And it was kind of sad too because these were women in their 80s and their children didn't really want to know their stories sometimes and their grandchildren, you know, they thought it was really boring. Uh, and one lady had written out, she'd written this whole folder of all her life um, and I was probably like the only person who was interested in it. Um, and she gave me a copy and I found out last year that she passed away. So I just thought it was really, yeah, it was really special. It's there. Um, yeah, it's there. So, her, you know, and her name's in the book. Yeah. Things like that. So, yeah, I always try to acknowledge if people help help you out. Um, and they also read read the final manuscript for me. I mean, there's always going to be mistakes. It's not, it's not my culture. So um, yeah. there's always going to be things that I'm going to get wrong. But having them go through it and do that sort of sensitivity read I thought that was really important to the project Mm. and I guess that was in living memory as well exactly the question of historical fiction within living memory yes exactly fiction and factor feel like they may have more weight to people yeah I mean that's right it it does always seem to have a lot of weight I remember speaking to someone in Iceland Chris keeps talking about where I go where it's cold which I do I like cold (laughs) But when I was in Iceland speaking to uh, the hosts of the guest house I was staying in, it was saying that, oh, look, everyone was really excited when Hannah Kent wrote the burial, wrote burial rites. Yeah. And they've all been trying to write the great Icelandic historical novels since Hazel yes. Luxus died. Isn't and, that lovely? Um, yeah, and they're like, they weren't worried that it was Australian. They thought, of course it's an Australian. Someone from outside needs to come in and value what we, <laughs> what we had. That's right. And yeah. they all read it. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because sometimes as an outsider, you can you can see things. You don't you have that boldness too. I think to to try. Whereas if you're going to do it um, within your own culture, like I'm writing the the Australian contemporary storyline, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard not to write about 
what it, it's like to be an Australian with all the conflictions that we have. Um, yeah. And it, it doesn't feel authentic if you don't put that sort of thing in. So, um, but my mum's uh, Chinese, so my culture is Malaysian Chinese, and yeah. I have not attempted to write about that yet because <laughs> I just don't think I could do it yet. Yeah. It's hard for everyone, isn't it? It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. It's really hard, yeah. But I guess, I mean, all of these things seem to be an upswell in reinforming the historical canon. Yeah. And giving Which all those of us who were not uh, rich old white men exactly. the history that we yeah. can read. And also yeah. fun. Yes. You know, like, I, like we all love history. Well, yeah. I say that sweepingly as if everybody <laughs> loves history. Australians particularly love that love their history. Um, no, you know, if you do love history, you also want a plot. You also want a story, a character that's to go true. for, a sense yeah, of that's true. in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah I think it's always important to tell the story through someone's point of view, a character's point of view, or a narrator's point mm. of view, because otherwise it doesn't feel anchored to anything. It's just floating around, you know, sort of vague descriptions. Yeah, <laughs> I read once a, a thing by Jane Smiley who was talking because you know she's done some both historical non-fiction and historical fiction and yeah. she said to her you know what is this genre hierarchy all genres are just genres and history is history and everyone has a point of view but in historical yeah, okay. fiction you actually come right out and give your point of view that's so true it's yeah, in a way it can be a more honest form yeah because yeah yeah, the point of view is there rather than yeah. maybe left within the structure of the historical text or something. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why it's it's been quite hard to write lately um, during the pandemic. Like I found it really hard and I know other friends have found it hard because it feels like we don't know what the end of this will be. You know, we don't know what the future is. Looking. I mean, six months ago we could have said, with pretty much certainty what was going to happen and now we realise how <laughs> how wrong we all were to assume yeah. so many things about our lives and take things for granted and stuff. So, yeah, it's an interesting viewpoint and uh, um, I wonder I wonder if people will turn more towards historical fiction reading it just because it just feels feels more stable at the moment, I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, there's an end point. You're like, yeah, oh, there's yeah. an end point and a viewpoint, as you say. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder, I found reading your novel that I was identifying in ways I never expected to with the uh, 17th century uh, lifestyle of being stuck in a house all the time or going out for one item of food or, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, struggling to find flour or, you know, not, not the rest yeah. of it. Um, my life is particularly easy in comparison yeah. to all of those things. But the idea of a life that's bounded, like yeah. we can't travel at the moment. I was, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. Bess, Bess is a teenager, so we all feel the way that as adults we feel about some teenage gripes with things. But at the same time, mm-hmm. that kind of cloisteredness, yeah. that we're all trapped in a way at the moment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're, we're all very lucky and I guess they, they were in comparison yeah. to a lot of other women around them too. Yeah. But yeah. we are trapped. <laughs> yeah, we are, literally yeah. <laughs> at the moment. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing about the, the 18th, 17th, 18th century is that they didn't have um, vaccines. So right. when the plague came through, I mean, the last bubonic plague, the last great plague was the Black Plague in 1665. Um, so that was before this was set. But it kept coming back, you know, when they had scarlet fever and they had smallpox and things like that. Um, and so they would just come wave after wave every year and there's no way you could fight it. You would just have to live 
with with it yeah yes yeah well, and, and it's quarantine because you know swift is taking off defoe defoe writes plague years my That's mother right. in a journal like the plague years herself <laughs> um, Did she's, she? learning, she's learning from it i'm not quite sure what this entails at the moment but um, i know i found it so funny that people went off and read the plague <laughs> i couldn't think, I, I told her i couldn't think it worse yeah like, agreed. Spend the year of wonders i'm like another plague story okay <laughs> I actually like Year of Wonders. I think yeah. it's good, but yeah. I, I think she's looking for a plan out of it. <laughs> yeah, <So>. that's right. <laughs> I mean, I guess that was that's where my kind of last question, I guess, before we get into questions from the audience, um, if people have anything they'd love to ask, please send it to uh, Chris now And because I'm not very good at multitasking. I'm trying to read to the side and engage you with Laura. But do you feel... We talked about this sort of ethical responsibility and this question of representing groups of people, but also people learn from historical fiction. And as you mm. said, you can't get every single thing. Yeah. But I know that, you know, I guess historians will talk openly and do often have arguments about their historical fact. Mm. Where do you feel as a historical fiction author that your role lies in that in yeah, I think it's a, a very fine line to walk um, and you need to balance the story with um, what's historically accurate. I try to be as historically accurate as possible. I mean, even up to the last minute of publication, I'm ch I will check things yeah. um, and make sure that, you know, there's sort of no ana anachronism. And it's amazing how they sneak through <laughs> in a 100,000-word in a um, book. You know, there are little things that pop up. Um, as you're reading it you get so tired as well of yeah. rereading it again and again um, but yeah I think it's important to be as as accurate as possible but not um, to the detriment of the story so if it's going to pull you out of the story or you really need some extra backstory you know there's got to be a way of working it in that doesn't yeah. overwhelm um, the plot and the characters and things like that and as yeah. I said I think as well yeah telling it through the characters eyes um, you might not as a modern person agree with that viewpoint but that's how people would have thought yeah. and we, we can't know 100% no, what people no, thought we, but from reading other texts you know um, and reading um, reading their voices like I've really tried to read texts that were written by women of the time so that yeah. I could understand, yeah, understand their viewpoint and their vocabulary and things like that as well. It was really important. So, um, yeah, I like take that Hilary Mantel um, point of view where she says the past is, is like a foreign country um, yeah. and they do things differently. But, uh, but we can only know what we, we can imagine what we would um, do in that, in that situation. So I think it's having that empathy as well yeah. for... Um, for people that gives it that human shape and is why people continue to read historical fiction. I think I was, it's like, you know, when they, um, when they colorized all those black and white photos, yes. people feel like people are real people. Yes, that's true. And, I love those. They colorize some of the old newsreels of yep. like very, very early newsreels. Yeah. It totally changes the relationship. And I feel that's what it historical does. fiction can do too, because it creates that mm. empathy. Yeah. Like reading a voice that could, while very different, also relate to you and yeah. people become much more real yeah that's a great parallel yeah fictional or otherwise people yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay just a fun question 
which which person are you going to raise from which famous novel next? <laughs> after, <laughs> which after person would I? Like, who else is just hanging out to the side with no oh. story of their own? It's a good question, isn't it? Um, I would have I would have done Medusa, but Jesse Burton's already yeah. picked it up. I just thought yeah. that was so cool. <laughs> that is very cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I guess Madeline Miller's already in that space, doing her thing really well there. Um, I'm not really sure, actually. I think you've got to be really careful with um, with people that have been, you know, within living mem- memory, as you say. But yeah. um, something that I really love is I really love those. Um, heist books or those fraud books about people who have multiple identities um and i'd love to write a story about florence broadhurst she was that um designer but she yeah and there was an amazing story about uh there's a friend of mine wrote helen o'neill uh and i remember that book yeah Yeah, remember that book selling story it's so good so good but also Um, had someone in newtown ask me for it and they said it's a book it's about a person. I think someone's name has a B in it and on the cover oh they're doing God. this. And for some no. reason I worked it out. No but it, that's why I'll never forget Helen O'Neill's Florence. Yep, that's yep. the one. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so she, she had a really interesting life, didn't she? Because she kind of re- reinvented herself um, out here in the Antipodes. She was, uh, and then she went over to England and said she was royalty or something. So she just pinged back and forth. Uh, and then she was murdered in the 1970s and they never found out who did it. They suspected they knew. Yeah. But, ma- yeah, maybe something like that. That would be kind of interesting. That would be awesome. But that's yeah. also, yeah, that Sydney King's Cross underworld yeah. slash yeah. design world is a tricky yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, with, you know, wallpaper. <laughs> Yeah, but also, yeah, it would be beautiful. You could talk about beautiful yeah. things all the time. Yeah. yeah she yeah. seems very interesting. Yeah, she's very um, interesting. Uh, so I just, if you're, have you moved to some questions that yeah. I'm getting? So um, I, I have a question from Cassandra. Did you identify with any of the characters in Gulliver's Wife, with any of your um, characters? Any of my characters. I identified, um, I think, very strongly with Mary because um, she's around 38, which is like around my age, and... Um, and she has a daughter who thinks she knows everything. My daughter's only six, but she she definitely thinks she knows everything. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's six, going on sixteen, and mm. she has um, a lot of her own very strong opinions. So yeah. I I can kind of foresee this best future for her. Um, but yeah, I think I had to cast my mind back to remember what it was like to be fifteen, mm. which feels like a long time ago. But there are definitely things that I can remember about it. Um, and so I tried to put a lot of that in the story. Um, Bess has a curiosity and a kind of a macabre fascination with death. And uh, she digs up this little bird that she um, used to own a pet who, who died suddenly. And apparently, according to my parents, I used to do that. <laughs> I used to do that with my fish. Mm. Okay. And so, yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. I thought I was a scientist. It was but but it's that curiosity, isn't it? There are lots of things that we bury about um our child selves that I'm interested in um thinking about when I'm writing from a character's point of view. Yeah, I think we we blot out a lot of our past, but if if we were really honest with ourselves, it's all still sitting there. Yeah. Somewhere to be rediscovered. Exactly. Yeah. I think she's a great I, I mean, I love her as a character. Oh, thank you. Even as I find it frustrating. Oh, as, I know. She's, yeah, very There's like many teenage <laughs> conversations I've had with uh, my goddaughter who is, <laughs> you know, or anyone who's um, 
they just they're ready they're ready for more yeah and they you are. protect them from everything which never but they're not yeah and exactly. they're also not ready at all yes yeah, yeah. that yeah. feeling yeah no that's that's a good one <laughs> yes that it does lead to one of the that that really disturbing moment for me with the putrefying flesh yeah that was that, yeah pretty gross yeah, very evocative <laughs> yes yes oh and they have they still have that scaffold like it's if you go to Wapping, you can visit the execution docks and oh wow they've got it, yeah they've got it all set up as if you know it's execution day people didn't have a lot of entertainment so and i think it also reminded them that they were still alive you know when they would go yeah. one of those things so yeah i mean that's if it's not someone else it could be you yeah exactly for the smallest of crimes yeah yeah, it all feels very precarious, which does yes. seem like that, as you said, relates to how, you know, within our very limited scope, how we feel a bit at the moment. That's true. Yeah, it's that precarity. Um, yeah. I have an another question from Helen. Uh, do you have a background in history or in literature or because you've both written two historical novels and I know that you worked in, the li in Sutherland Library. Yeah. yeah, I did, yeah. Um, I have a communications degree, so I did a media and communications, yeah. um, which is now uh, completely obsolete. <laughs> it's a very different world now. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I did a, a English um, as my major for that. Yeah. So I think I did almost every English um, course on the program that I could. I just wanted to write stories and, and do English. I wasn't very good at the media side of it. Um, but I also went back and did a graduate diploma of um, publishing and editing. So, yeah. I, yeah, which I found was really helpful. Um, I wasn't writing at the time, but then once I started writing, I think knowing what that editing process was going to be was really helpful for me as a writer. Um, so in terms of um, history, I don't have a degree in history, in history but um, I'm just really interested in reading and learning. Yeah. Um, I'm going to do, I've just started a part-time master's in cultural heritage, which I think will be really interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's I, like a fascinating yeah. course. Yeah, it looks like a, and yeah, yeah, and that recent destruction yeah. of the Indigenous sites, you know, that made, it makes me, really pisses me off. So yeah. I'm really interested in that side of it because I don't think history is, it's not gone, you know. It's like we live with it all the time. Yeah. It informs everything that we do. So, yeah. You have more and less access to it all the time. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I think we're going to have to finish up. Okay. About now because we've been going very strong. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I can ask you a thousand more questions, but I, I feel like I guess someone probably has to do something else at some point. <laughs> Maybe even you have Thank to you at some me. point tonight. I, yeah, I probably should put my kids to bed soon. Yes. Look, and my cat hasn't... Oh, she's gone to sleep next to me. Sorry. Oh, we're, no. For everyone no else, we were expecting a visit from my cat, but it's gone on too long. She's gone to sleep. Your kids need to go to sleep. <laughs> so the very last question, what have you been reading during lockdown? Oh, what have I been reading? Yeah, yeah. and what yeah, was... do you intend to read? It was hard, wasn't it? Um, I couldn't read anything more than a headline for about two weeks and yeah. I found it really impossible, as I'm sure you did. Oh, yeah, um, it's great for our jobs, isn't it? So. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Um, I read um, Hamnet, the Mar Maggie O'Farrell oh, book. Speaking of yeah. women in yes. this, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was some parallels there, so I really wanted to read that. Yeah. Um, and that was great. I read Laura Jean McKay's um, The Animals in That Country about the zoo flu. Yeah. Which I thought was brilliant as well. I thought there was some really cool 
things to pull out of there. And then I just finished reading um, The Inland Sea by Madeline Watts, which is about a woman, well, it's about a woman who's um, one of her ancestors was looking for the inland sea through Australia and there are um, parallels with her body and her growth and, and how women's borders and, the, yeah, so that, that's what I've been reading. It was good, right. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I feel that we have all of those books at Reading yeah. for everyone else who wants yeah. to get on board now. And so thank you. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's been wonderful. Um, it's so nice to catch up with you again when yes. you know, the last event we ever <laughs> did was having drinks and seeing your book for the first time. So I'm it was, glad it was. of um, having fun out there in the world. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll see you at uh, more things virtually. Sounds good. Thank you, Marie. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. For being here. Thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, everyone. Marie, what an extraordinary interviewer you are. Lauren, a, a treat of a guest. I appreciate it so much. On behalf of Readings, on behalf of your publishing house, Simon & Schultzer, thank you, thank you. And to all of you out there in Zoom land, I wish that we were in a shop. I wish I was pouring you some cheap red wine into some plastic <laughs> glasses. That time will come. Until then, it's a complete and utter joy to see each and every one of you. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time. Good night, my friends. Good night. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there... You can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.